and welcome to Lament Configuration, a podcast about shit that makes us sad, horny, angry, whatever. I am Gretchen Felker-Martin, horror novelist and film critic, and with me is my illustrious co-host, Julia Graffer. I'm a cartoonist. Tonight we're going to be answering listener questions, which we're actually starting to develop a backlog of. <laughs> Let's see if we can clear them out. We yeah. got a uh, kind of a long one today on Discord. Yeah, we did. I saw that. Maybe we'll save that for last. Okay. Start with something easy. What do you have? Or do you want to launch right in with the big? Uh No, let's let's get warmed up first. Okay. I'm intimidated right. now. I'm very nervy today. Yeah, I feel you. I've been like crawling out of my skin since this morning. Mm, something in the it... air, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I spent most of today, well, aside from working and stuff, reading about the Man Gulch fire. I don't know anything (laughs) about that. Well, I I have the Wikipedia tab still open. It was a wildfire on August 5th, 1949, in a gulch in the upper Missouri River. They, uh, a group of men parachuted into the wildfire to stop it, got trapped in the gulch, and burned to death. That, I mean, I... (laughs) <laughs> I to shake my finger at long dead people who died trying to do something heroic, but parachuting into a wildfire does not seem like an awesome idea. Well, okay, they parachuted like adjacent to it. I don't, I don't know what I, I really, I realized re- reading this that I know nothing about how one fights a fire. And the Wikipedia article and the other pieces that I read about it did not make this clear and seemed to presume that I'm very familiar with fighting fires. Like, what could you do if you just parachute into, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, you know, I mean, I assume they didn't bring like a bunch of water. Maybe they did. They, I they guess came with a plane like, or something, a helicopter, maybe. You could dig trenches for a fire break. Oh, that's so labor intensive. Now we just like carpet bomb with fire retardant chemicals. Well, it's interesting that the reason that I was reading about this was because uh, I actually started out by reading about this was a couple days ago. It's been a long, enjoyable Wikipedia meander reading about the airport disaster in uh, Spain in the 70s where the two planes drove into one another. Mm-hmm. because there was some confusion in the communication between them and the control tower and the, the whole area was fogged in. And because I guess the fact that that went so badly is attributed largely to the miscommunication, I mean, among other things, but they were using some non-standard terminology that, you know, for example, like one of them said like ready for takeoff and then the other one thought that meant they had been cleared for takeoff. And so in response to this, they developed this thing called cockpit resource management, which is a particular system of communication where if you're in a situation where even a minor error can have really disastrous results, then everybody has to receive training to, if you think something might be wrong, you have to speak up. You have to, even if it means contradicting a superior, and so people learn, they're they're trained how to pose those kind of objections and how to receive them without getting angry, and that's really interesting. That is fascinating. You 
don't hear much of that. Yeah, and it's so important. Like I, I notice it always when I read um, transcripts of uh, space missions. Yeah, <laughs> where like uh, part of what makes them fascinating is that everybody is so cooperative, and it's like clearly something that they select for mm-hmm. in choosing the people who are going to be a team of astronauts together and something that they train on because of course you know they're stuck in very close quarters and so like the way that they communicate is very clear very supportive so i'm going to read you because i thought this was so interesting the method of communication that they are taught to do so there's five steps first an opening or attention getter Address the individual, hey, chief, or Captain Smith, or Bob, or whatever the name or title will get the person's attention. State your concern. Express your analysis of the situation in a direct manner while owning your emotions about it. I'm concerned that we may not have enough fuel to fly around the storm system. State the problem as you see it. We're only showing 40 minutes of fuel left. State a solution. Let's divert to another airport and refuel. Obtain agreement or a buy-in. Does that sound good to you, Captain? That's I was like, really, that's so that's, smart. <laughs> that's really cool. I feel like so often that's kind of the special sauce that's missing from trying to have any kind of negotiation with anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. It reminded me of our conversation about etiquette a few weeks ago. Right, exactly. Because part of what makes this work is that everybody is expecting a certain communication style. They know what to expect to hear and they know how to react. So that streamlines the process, helps people like not have surprise feelings about it and helps everybody work better together. That's very fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, so this man gulch fire uh, possibly could have been prevented by better crew resource management. Because this cockpit resource management system was expanded to other high-risk professional situations and in that case became known as crew resource management. Or it has some other names too. I feel like there's not a ton of room for ego when you're talking about a natural disaster that could obliterate a whole city. So another thing that I learned from this Man Gulch fire was that the guy who was the captain uh, or the the boss of the team apparently just kind of on the spot had the idea to invent something called an escape fire. It's it's called that now. What happened was that there was this wildfire. So they're in a gulch, right? They're in a, like a valley. They're on one side of it. The wildfire is down a bit, I think, south and on the other side, on the opposite wall from them. The guy who's up front, this is the leader. His name is uh, Wag. <laughs> I think his name is Wagner. Wag Dodge. Uh, so Wag is up front, and he uh, so he comes around this little dip. He's the first to do it, and sees that wind has thrown some inflamed debris across the gulch, and now the grasses on the other side, the side that they are on, are also on fire. So this is where the miscommunication comes in, is that he has to come back and tell the guys to retreat, and they don't understand what's going on, and 
there's just, again, difficulty with communication because there's an enormous wall of fire bearing down on them. Um, But so, like I say, what he did is that he got out his pack of matches and set fire to the area that he was immediately in. Oh, right, right, right. So that the fire would have nothing to consume when it reached them. Exactly. Apparently, this is like a technique that had been used a little bit elsewhere and that people native to the area had occasionally done, but he had never heard of it before. He just had the idea that this would be the only thing that was going to save them. But he... It it was hard for the the other people on the team to understand what his idea was, but right. he survived. He by only a couple of people survived, but and nobody else got into his little fire hole with him. Oh. Uh, but yeah, he just stayed in his little patch of cleared ground, and the wildfire just blew past him, which must have been terrifying. Good he God. said that it almost blew him off the ground. I'll tell you another thing that I learned which is gruesome. Um, oh, please. <laughs> which is uh, that they had thought at one time that people being consumed by a wildfire would have died from suffocation. And at some point in the investigation of this fire, they discovered that, that is not the case. They died from burning. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Because apparently the fire is too intense to uh, kill by suffocation. So that's interesting. That's So like it, it killed them too quickly for them to suffocate? I guess. Wonderful. That sounds like a lot of fun either way. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's why I'm feeling a little anxious. That and right before I got on, I was reading the there was like a big Twitter thread about diet culture from the 90s. Mm. And I shouldn't have read it, but I did. Oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. I know how rough that stuff is. Yeah. So we don't need to talk about it, but... Yeah. You want to get into the questions? Yeah. What you got? All right. This is from Vanico. What is a favorite example of storytelling in games? Twine games totally count here. What the fuck is a twine game? Uh, It's like a choose-your-path adventure online with, like, hypertext and stuff. Yeah, like sort of a navigable novel i feel like like mist (laughs) yeah like that kind of sort of obtuse um setting based storytelling where just like open world wandering around finding clues i i've seen people complain about the game mechanic where you like find a guy's journal and you have to read the entire journal i love that i will read a guy's journal that's the shit that's the absolute shit i remember Back when I used to play um, Morrowind, the third Elder Scrolls game, which is like this janky, old, extremely hairy and complicated computer game. There are entire books in that. Nice. Like literally books worth of text. And I did wind up reading most of them. (laughs) Good for you. I loved that. I liked that verisimilitude. I guess ultimately Mist has kind of a stupid story, but I played it when I was like 12. So... It seemed profound to me at the time. It's also very beautifully told. It is. It's got like cool, spooky music and 
that type of game was new and I did not really play video games very much. So I didn't really know what to expect. Like, I guess I figured out that you can't exactly die in mist, but there's still like parts that were very scary to me. Like I was like, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to, something terrible could happen to me. The whole atmosphere is very, I don't know, uh, melancholy. Yeah. Kind it's of kind spooky. of spooky. Yeah. So yeah, I liked that a lot. That was a an early formative experience of gaming for me. Yeah. I think the first game that I got like really, really invested in was probably Final Fantasy VII, you know, like most kids in my nice. generation. <laughs> I don't think there's anything particularly elegant or interesting about the way it tells its story, but that's the the first game that I remember like writing fan fiction about and stuff. Oh, what was your fan fiction about? Oh, it's been like 20 years. Who knows? <laughs> I definitely wrote Mist fan fiction. Mist is such a good world for fan fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just was mostly like just about with... me having adventures in the world of Mist, but <laughs> I think the game that has my favorite story is probably Knights of the Old Republic 2, um, which is a, a Star Wars role-playing game. I've cooled a lot on Star Wars since I was a teenager. It doesn't really mean anything to me anymore. But it was so interesting to watch this game take all the trappings and sort of thin philosophizing of Star Wars and pull it apart, not like with cheap cynicism, but by taking it to its logical conclusion. Hmm. It's like a game about the nature of power and love and connection to other people. And it has a really heart shattering ending with the villain. Who's also your mentor where she lays out that there's like no big giant plan that's been driving her whole conspiracy. She just wanted to, refine and train you as well as she could and now either you'll kill her or she'll kill you and either way she loves you Jesus. and it's very like you know it's it's sort of a silly martial arts plot but something about the voice acting and the the bleakness of it really appeals to me hmm. so that's that's probably my answer cool shall we move on to the next one yeah this comes from perdrix i'm late to the game but what's a favorite personal work of yours and why? Oh, that's a good question. Thank you. Mm. I, I think my favorite thing that I've, I've written is probably Ego Hominy Lupus, which is my novel about a medieval housewife in the 12th century who is married off to a knight who has like no household and, is a very low rank and has to try to raise his children and keep his house in the middle of the Northumbrian forest and the way that he makes his living and keeps the deed to his land is by hunting wolves and presenting the pelts at court every year. It was a really cool experience for me because I got to make this book that was really in, in my mind, the only important part was that I was really interested in it. I didn't make it for anyone else. And that made it very special to me when people got really into it anyway. I like to write about 
the small lives. Yeah. Um, for me, I don't know if I have a favorite. Uh, I think I really like Palm Ash, even though I know that's your favorite. Uh, it is. And it's one of my only comics that doesn't have any sex in it. So that's a little strange, but I like it because I think it's very sad. I think it has like a, it has a lot of moments that are poignant to me personally that like, so it's about people who are like secret Christians in the Roman empire. And uh, there's this one guy who they keep, you know, putting him in the arena and sending lions to eat him, but the lions won't eat him. And he's a Christian. He's very devout, but he doesn't really understand why this is happening. And uh, the woman who is caring for him, who, I mean, caring is not the right word. She works there and like sweeps his cell and brings him food and stuff is, is secretly also a Christian and is really moved by this spectacle. I think I like how much it leans into things that are a little bit ridiculous. There's the man, the saint, his name is Simeon. He's like very fanciful. Like he, she brings him to eat like uh, figs and some kind of meat. And he's like, oh, I can't eat this. Can you give it to the lions? And she's like, no. <laughs> uh, and she brings it home and gives it to her son. Or there's like a, a part where these other just random Roman guys are observing the secular games. And one of them recognizes that uh, one of the people who's about to be entertainingly killed is his mistress. <laughs> uh, I fucking love that part. Oh, yeah. Poor that guy. I don't know. I guess I got to put a lot of stuff that is like fun stuff for me. And it also... I'll, most of my stories include just like ambient information, little bits of stories that I've read here and there. So for example, that guy, I want to say his name is Gemellus or something like that. Um, his mistress is going to be killed by being raped to death by a bull, uh, which is supposedly a thing. Like the, the real, we don't have a ton of information about these kinds of, events like particularly the like spectacles that they used to stage with like condemned prisoners being killed in creative ways but supposedly they would do things like this where it was like uh supposed to represent some kind of tableau from mythology you know so it's like the rape of europa or something right but you know i've also read like that they accomplished this by like training the animals to like have sex with people and the that like uh wrapping the victim in like furs that had the scent of you know it's just it's it sounds very impractical and it's the kind of story that you um oftentimes when you read about it it's clear that the person writing it is uh straying into fancy <laughs> yeah i Man, we really should do an episode on torture and execution. <laughs> I mean, I think we could probably do a whole podcast just about torture and execution. 
That's so, totally true. Among the many inspirations for Palm Ash, I had this book called uh, Those About to Die by Daniel P. Mannix, who also wrote The Fox and the Hound. He wrote a lot of books, but I got this for like, I think, 50 cents at a Salvation Army, like on the Oregon coast somewhere. And it's out of print because it's not a very good book. (laughs) But it's lurid as all hell. And it, you know, it's the kind of book that I would have been like sneaking from the library when I was a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and reading it, I realized very quickly that he was describing things that he couldn't possibly know. Mm -hmm. The descriptions of these deaths are highly embellished. You know, they talk about like how the people feel and like this person dies first and then this person dies and this person is bitten in half by an alligator. And then her friend is like, Oh no, the kind of things that historians don't record that are clearly being typed one handed in Daniel P. Mannix's squalid little apartment. Uh, Like for example, he says something about like, well, the, the doors that let the animals out into the arena, like they're really heavy and like how did they open them well they probably just had like some slaves do it and if they got eaten then who cares because life was cheap back then that's not true at all <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's the explanation was pretty cheap but yeah so palmash is not a particularly historically accurate story like i'm always saying like it it it's not the point right uh you because it's very similarly about historical fiction and like what the purpose of it is for us. So the idea is to talk about what that era and that aesthetic means to us, what it represents for us, a modern audience. It's not to educate you about life in, you know, uh, third century North Africa. I think that's what I really, really love about Pomash in part is it's sort of like this bleeding edge where symbolism and reality meet. Mm hmm. It centers around this incredible, inexplicable spectacle. But in the end, that collapses in on itself for, you know, a a very sort of prosaic reason, Mm -hmm. which is that he smells better to the lions. (laughs) Um, But it's such a beautiful book to me because I think that any symbol that structures a whole story like that is inherently very fragile. Mm-hmm. And to show it break correctly is something that requires a lot of finesse. I mean, that was that was the book that got me into your work. Oh. Yeah, I think that the the story is very tight. Also, I think it's only twenty pages long. It's um, very very like it it clips along. Yeah, ev- every panel in that story is pulling its weight. I like that a lot. And there's a lot of like kind of subtle. Uh, modulations in the tone of the conversation that the two leads have especially with Dia the main character who is always like kind of joking a little bit Mm -hmm. and then because Simeon kind of has no sense of humor like she occasionally will be confronted with his extreme seriousness and drop her guard and those those moments are really exciting anyway I think it's a good story it's a beautiful story. Thank you. You're welcome. Shall we move on to the next question? Let's do it. 
All right. This one comes from EF. Do you like zombie apocalypse stories? No, I don't. Yeah. Um, I like 28 Days Later. I thought that was good, but that's... And I like um, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead, the Romero movies. But as a genre, zombie apocalypse just does absolutely nothing for me. Almost every zombie thing that I've seen outside of the ones that I mentioned is just like, what if you had an ironclad excuse to do any kind of brutal violence that you wanted to anyone? Because, you know, some fucking thing like your nuclear family is threatened yeah it's it's always just like weirdly fashy yeah i don't like it um right well because that's that's the the prepper fantasy right Right. is that you're gonna be forced to defend your home against the hordes or whatever right when the real apocalypse situation is that like you die from iodide deficiency or something right you slowly waste away from like a a urinary tract infection over a period of years yeah the the people who are most dangerous to that kind of like prepper demographic are other preppers who are like anal retentive control freaks who can't see the bigger picture (laughs) yeah it's not a zombie movie but there is a great movie about that exact thing called it comes at night where two families merge after the end of the world and even though everything is totally fine the whole situation dissolves into bloodshed because the the fathers can't coexist who's the most dad exactly who is who is the supreme dad but yeah long story short no i I don't i don't like zombie apocalypse stories I mean, I hate to discount the entire subgenre, but it just, it like means nothing to me. I don't, there's no frisson there for me. I don't get it. This is not an invitation to explain it to me, just so you know. Oh God, no. It's like superheroes for me. I look at it and I just feel absolutely nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely inert. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's tough when people ask us like, do you like such and such thing? And it's just kind of, no. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that anyone who listens to us in general knows that even though we are kind of, you know, snobby and pretentious, and I, I think that that's... Speak for yourself, I'm a man thing. of the people. <laughs> I think that our good taste is is honestly come by. Um, <laughs> I mean, naturally, naturally, we would think that. Look, this is what you get for asking a yes or no question. Yeah. But in general... My opinion about art is always that I would rather people enjoy things that they enjoy than argue with other people about what things are the best. Fair enough. If you want to know what art is the best, though, I I will tell you and I do know. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. All right. This comes from Hounds of Love. What's an older work or genre you wish more people appreciated? Hmm. Romance? Yeah. I mean... It's not I agree with you. exactly older, but there used to be more of a focus on romance, I think. And I just, I think that love stories are very, they're inherently interesting. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily need an excuse to enjoy them. Uh, and I think that we tend to think of them as 
uh, frivolous. It's kind of it's gauche to describe a a story as primarily a love story uh, or a yeah, romance. That's a really silly trend. It is. A lot of the great, I mean, a lot of the great novels are are love stories. Fuck, Ulysses is a love story. It's about a guy reconciling with with his wife after they lose a child. Jane Eyre is a love story. Right. Like, fucking Bram Stoker's Dracula, the greatest <laughs> movie ever made, is a love story. <laughs> True. I think Bram Stoker's Dracula is so so much improved by the gentle introduction of a tragic romance i completely agree i think it was the uh the missing ingredient yeah it was the secret I, I love... limb of dracula <laughs> i love dracula no me too but it takes it to a whole new place there's like a kind of a fragile prissiness about sexuality that you know is partly of its time of course but that's the the subtext of a lot of the novel mm-hmm. and it makes sense in the context of a film to bring that to the forefront especially because we as the viewers are privy to this to this story of, of dracula and his wife and at some point mina kind of hears about it like mm-hmm. she doesn't totally understand what is happening either but the others are, you know, like it's totally lost on them. So everybody else in the story is having the same experience that they do in the novel. And it really only serves to give you this extra dimension of enjoying uh, Dracula's emotional journey, <laughs> which yeah, I think it's... is what one wants. That's like one of the things that you want and don't get from the novel. It's like, well, how does Dracula feel? Yeah, it Seriously. The one good scene in Shadow of the Vampire, which is this weird, it's a very weird movie. It's a fictionalization of the filming of Nosferatu, mm-hmm. the F.W. Murnau film. <laughs> First of all, John Malkovich plays Murnau. <laughs> cool. And Eddie Izzard plays his leading man, whose name I forget. It's it's just like no one has any kind of accent that is appropriate or coherent. It's just a ham really sandwich. Weird. Yeah. Um, Willem Dafoe is Count Orlock. Oh, God bless. Max Shrek. And there's this fantastic scene where, so the conceit of the movie is that everyone else thinks that Orlock is a method actor named Max Shrek. Uh-huh. And Orlock is actually Count Orlock, a Fuck vampire. Yes. Um, that rules. Yeah, That's it's an incredible such a premise. premise. It's so good. And there's this amazing part where someone is talking to him about Dracula and asking him like what he thought of the book. (laughs) And he looks at them with like, I mean, it's Willem Dafoe. So he's got this incredible ravaged face. Mm -hmm. And he says, I felt sorry for Dracula when he has to host Jonathan Harker. He would have to set that table himself. He would have to buy the bread. He doesn't know how to do any of this anymore. And it was like, oh, he's describing literally his own experience with the story that inspired this. Wow. And how helpless he has become as someone who's totally alone in time. I love that. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And the the movie on either side of it really sucks, unfortunately. Um, But it's just so amazing to see the weakness of this 
monstrous figure. You know, he, he, in the same scene, he talks about how he has forgotten how to make other vampires <laughs> and that the only other one he ever knew left. Oh. It's, it's just like, it really sells the whole oceans of time concept. Hell yeah. This is so often what we want from a monster to learn about their tragic backstory. Right. Because we relate to monsters and one cannot help but do so. And there's so much pleasure in seeing this monstrous figure uh, and learning about their secret pain or whatever. You know, this it's uh I don't know, I'm thinking about like Hannibal Lecter. Like the I I don't think that this is like the greatest backstory that he could possibly have, but like his backstory is that his baby sister was eaten by Nazis. <laughs> do you remember this? I do. It's something I know that that we have different opinions on the show, which I I really like, but and something I that don't. I, I know, sweetie. <laughs> um, something that I did really like about the show is that they play with that backstory, and then it ends up being a fabrication. And there's just like no matter how many layers deep you go, there's just nothing. There's no reason. That's fair. Yeah, I don't have like a. I don't have a reason for not liking it. It just rubs me the wrong way. Well, it's like, <laughs> it's very cheesy. Yeah, I find it really silly. And it, it definitely is silly at times to its own detriment. And ultimately, I think the last season's back half kind of twitches around and then falls apart. It does not have a good ending, in my opinion. I think it was like around the middle of season two that I was like, okay, I'm done. This is a waste of my time. Oh, when they're like trying to kill each other with dueling serial killers and stuff? I don't remember. There was like Mason Verger stuff. Ah, I... There was like Femme Margot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, to be fair, I will take Femme Margot over the god-awful horror show that is Margot in the books. He tried. Thomas Harris tried. He sure did. (laughs) Do you think that was his idea of like positive trans representation? He was like, well, James Gum made everybody really sad. So (laughs) So let's try this extremely (laughs) cool new way of making (laughs) them incredibly demeaning and embarrassing. We could probably do a whole episode on Buffalo Bill, a character I think about a lot. And man, in the book, when he dies, the last thing that he says is he asks Clarice, what does it feel like to be so beautiful? That comes up in the show, Clarice. That's... Have you been watching that? No. I've been, I'd watch it with Sean because he reviews it. It's fine. It's, it's decent. Yeah, uh, that's the impression I got. They went to great pains to recreate scenes from the film. Lord. And so, well, it refers back to the film a lot and kind of builds on some of those events because it takes place like a year after the events of the film. Okay. So, yeah, at first I was kind of like, well, thanks for reminding us that this is based on a beloved thing. (laughs) Just kind of trying to hustle its way into my goodwill. Yeah, I feel like my first dramatic instinct if I was running a show would be to not 
constantly remind people of Anthony the extremely Hopkins. good movie that it isn't <laughs> right like let's take one of the best thrillers ever made and just constantly make sure that people remember that we're not that well it's really just the scenes in bill's house okay that they kind of recreate and expand on uh the most recent episode that we watched has her confronting or Catherine martin confronting her because she has a different memory of what happened when clarice came into the house so that's kind of interesting that is cool yeah it's the one of the things that i find most difficult to swallow about it is uh that it seems like paul krendler is supposed to be kind of a good guy he is like her 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 shitty boss (laughs) yeah the corn pone country pussy guy that's that does seem kind of ridiculous what is that sound oh uh sorry lenny was rubbing up against the screen lenny is (laughs) thanks lenny yeah in the books i forget i think he shows up briefly in silence of the lambs and then he plays a more prominent role in hannibal the books um crendling around yeah being her like co-worker who sexually harasses her and then spends a long time thinking about how the next time he sees her he's gonna call her corn pone country pussy and that's gonna show her you know how little he thinks of her whatever and then at the end of it they uh, hannibal like paralyzes him and they eat his brain together oh that's right i remember reading that scene i thought it was really hot it's pretty good and i think that he says something to that effect when they're eating his brain because it's like one of the things that's just kind of bouncing around in there and they're just kind of like okay guy (laughs) Hannibal's like oh that was unspeakably rude (laughs) it's very precious but yeah so it's hard for me to see Crindler on the show and like be supposed to give him the benefit of the doubt it's like oh well he's just trying to manage the PR for the FBI and he just you know he wants to support Clarice and her journey of self-discovery but he's trying to protect her and like teach her to be a better cop and it's like I'm just like corn pone country pussy <laughs> it's, a, it's all I can think when he's on screen the actor's very handsome though well that's that's something it's not nothing that's actually a good segue into the next question let's hear the next question this comes from rag is there anyone actor, musician, model, or some other public figure that took you a long time to find beautiful or physical qualities. Sorry, the the phrasing here is a little confusing, but the gist of it is, is there a famous person whose appearance took you a long time to appreciate or whose appearance Mm -hmm. you took a long time to appreciate? I don't know. I can't really think of like, I'm not one of those people who looks at a popular actor and is like, why does everybody think they're attractive? They're not attractive. All actors are attractive. Give me a fucking break. (laughs) I think, I mean, I'm sure that my palette has expanded as I've gotten older, but that's true of all things. Right. You know, I like more foods than I did when I was a child. I like more types of books and I'm able to find more types of people beautiful. And to me, finding people, finding something attractive in a variety of types of people is a virtue that we should cultivate. I agree. And a sign of a sophisticated palette. I don't know that there are specific famous people, celebrities, who I've had this experience with. But as I 
have matured. You know, I remember the first time that I was with another trans woman and the experience of desiring a body that in some ways had qualities that I loathed about my own. That was very transformative for me. And it was also part of a process of being able to see beauty in different ways. And I felt very similarly about the first time that I was with another fat woman that was incredibly tender and really opened up a lot of old wounds and made me look at my preconceptions about what about my own body was good or bad and what I should or should, you know, what I was going through life looking for. I think it's really easy to follow the rails when it comes to attraction. Mm -hmm. You're raised for it and you know on every level that normatively marketably attractive people are going to give you social cachet and a sense of belonging in a lot of situations that a non-normative partner would not. Mm -hmm. So there's there's like a, your feelings of attraction towards somebody are not only the things that you feel inside, but you also are dealing with your projected ideas of what it will be like to be with this person in space. Right. When you both inevitably move to Mars. No, uh, but like out in the world. So for example, even if you're not, it's not your natural inclination in in a perfect bubble, devoid of any influence at all, maybe you would be attracted to a different type of person. But part of what attracts you to people that are considered normatively attractive is that you know that other people will like you and respect you if you're with that right. person. And you like, know, it confers a lot of validation when somebody who you see being valued by other people values you. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of my adult life, I have certainly spent chasing that high from thin people, especially. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not something I find particularly attractive, and it's not something that has ever really brought me any happiness. <laughs> <laughs> you but know like, not that that's... I haven't enjoyed being with individual thin people but like the the pursuit of that approval is specifically what's wrong right like even if you don't have that for yourself you can like borrow a little piece of it by standing next to them and maybe people will treat you better because of it or something you know yeah that's always been very weird I have heard people say the most unbelievably heinous shit to my face when I was with a thin person. Really? Yeah, people get really upset about it and like weirded out and they want to make a joke out of it. Huh. Like there was a a great psychological study on this that I think was done at Harvard about five or six years ago about size disparity in romantic partnerships. And people in the study had incredibly strong reactions to it, like even stronger than other types of differenced relationships um like same-sex relationships and stuff there's this perception that being with a for a thin person to choose to be with a fat person is seen as really repulsive 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, I guess that's my long and meandering answer to that very thoughtful question. Huh. We have time for one more. Yeah, let's hear that long one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's skip down. Okay. This comes from Des Demoniacal. I have a question that I don't know how to articulate. I find it difficult to talk with some friends of mine about good, quotes, representation, because I feel we're talking about slightly different things. Me about queerness and disability and otherness in indie work focusing on messy stories, and they on, like, racism and sexism slash sexualization in mass media and fan art. I guess I'm wondering, how do you bridge the gap when talking to people who seem to have a vastly different idea of what sort of representation is important and what representation does for them? That is a really I mean, thoughtful question. <laughs> I am not necessarily, like, I'm not interested in trying to bring those people around to my point of view. Like, I probably, in a conversation like that, would try to meet those people where they are. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to convince anybody that they should be getting something different out of the art that they like than what they are. Yeah, you're very good at that, at um, finding common ground with people, even if it's not really ground you occupy. Thank you. I, you know, that's always a quality that I really admired in Hazel. Yeah, so I think that I've gotten better that. at that since becoming close to them because they are able to have friendships with all kinds of people who are really different from them because they're just... Mm-hmm interested in people uh and don't they don't take offense when there's a difference of experience right it's uh they don't take it as a personal criticism like you can say to them like you know i don't like that i don't experience that that way and they'll just be like that's cool (laughs) they have a very firm sense of self Mm -hmm. which is is just a lovely quality this is uh our friend Hazel Nulevant, who's a wonderful graphic novelist. I think for me, this is also not something I really do anymore. I'm definitely a lot easier to irritate than you are when it comes <laughs> to things like this. Like, if someone wants to talk to me about how much they love Captain Marvel, I'm going to go fucking insane. It it just shreds my brain. Well, I, I mean, no you, because of your work people are much more likely to come up to you and be like, Hey, I heard what you said. Stupid. You yeah. know, like people will start <laughs> shit with you. People don't usually start shit with me. Yeah. In person, I've found that these discussions are usually pretty pacific. So I guess that, that is my incredibly blunt and obvious advice would be if there are touchy conversations, have them face to face where the nuance and modulation of body language can help you preserve a, generative tone i think the question is like what's the goal of the conversation right in this question you say these are your friends right so the goal of the conversation presumably is you know to share your thoughts and feelings about art what it means to you and what you would like to see that you don't see and those are conversations that you can have and enjoy without uh without trying to bring them around to your point of view i i also think you know, I'm kind of hung up on this term messy stories because I know it's something that you and I talk about a lot, Gretchen, and I see it get picked up as pejorative a lot, you know, because people like suck all this extra stuff into this umbrella, like 
they'll say like, oh, so child pornography is fine because it's okay to be messy, you know? Uh, yeah. Just <laughs> the, like incredibly bad faith shit. Just perfect, beautiful baby brain preserved in formaldehyde takes. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've reached the point where I have committed way too much of my time already to these people. And so I just don't talk to them anymore. I well, block them as soon as they appear. <laughs> They have nothing of value to add to my life, and I don't care to engage in theirs. Good for you. That's the that is the correct take. That is the adult brain in the open air take, or in the in the brain sauce, whatever, wherever brains are supposed to be. I have come to understand that not everybody is comfortable with the idea of messy stories, and if you like seeing things that are, it's so hard to talk about it in a way that doesn't make my bias obvious because I anybody who's listening to it to this knows that I prefer to take in art that is difficult and challenging and upsetting and messy and whatever but not everybody wants to do that and that doesn't you can't make them you can't make right. them want and to do that's that okay <laughs> um, yeah that's a, that's so my yeah, extremely you know. joy sex toy take Oh, God. not everybody likes messy art and that's okay <laughs> yeah i think like you know if it's a point of contention there's really no need to go there because like you said what trying to change someone's mind through discussion and argument is not something that i think is really a great use of time <laughs> yeah your people are out there if you want to broaden the categories of stuff you can talk about with friends you know, There's Gretchen and I agree with each other about almost everything, and we never run out of stuff to talk about. Yeah. It's fine to just have friends who agree with you. Right. Like, you know, I love to sit on a rotten branch next to you, my beautiful vulture sister, and uh -huh. talk about all sorts of awful things at infinitum. And I have lots of other friends. Um, I think people are often very surprised to learn that my partner is a small purple haired extremely kind and adorable person who really likes batman just um, someone who loves their rats and doctor who yeah and i think that like and you know we also both love horror a lot and love film and never run out of things to talk about we've been talking about shit for a decade now and we still talk every day but yeah i think it's important to have a lot of different kinds of friends. It's very important to have friends who are like your people, you know, who are on the same page in a lot of big, important ways. I have also come to believe that representation is a little bit of a mugs game. Yeah. I don't think that we can fix social problems by depicting people in a proper way. Yeah. You know, there was an episode of You're Wrong about recently that was about, uh, What's her name? Vanessa Williams, the Miss America. Yeah. And how part of the uh, part of what made her like nude modeling and whatever such a big deal is she was the first black Miss America. And there was this idea that like we have to present these like very sanitized versions of you black be a people. Minority. Yeah. And then that's going to that's going to fix racism is, is that, you know. We're going to also have a black Barbie and then, or whatever. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, there was that meme where you talk about what is your, uh, 
uh, fictional characters that have your same name. And one of mine was uh, Julia from the TV show that is about, I think it's the first TV show that had a black woman as a main character. And she's like a nurse and it's really nice. And it was on in the seventies. And a lot of people felt that it was a very uh, like a sanitized version of what it's like to be black in America. Um, yeah. And, you know, other people like say the people who are running the networks are like, this is good representation, like showing people like there's like a flavor of like, oh, look, they're just like us. Look, they can act like us or whatever. Like, oh, uh, uh, you'll believe that a paraplegic can be a superhero. Like when the the way that we solve the problem that those attempts at representation are trying to address is by drawing on a more diverse pool of creators yes and also like and i'm I'm not saying you can't care about both of these things but like man ultimately this is all about the necessity of reparations yes <laughs> <laughs> you know like well yeah you it, can have all the good representation you want it doesn't fix centuries of of uh i mean genocide <laughs> yeah it uh it won't send the boats back. Anyway, ultimately, I do think that representation is of limited use in any way. And that what we should really be focusing on is, like you said, getting a more diverse group of artists into the game. If you're looking for things to to bridge this divide with your friends, try sharing indie work that you really love by creators they might not find otherwise. And maybe it'll be a point of common ground. And if not, like I said, there are a lot of friends to be made out there. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I think that it is a little bit easier to, you know, when you take in indie work, you have an understanding that that was made by a person Mm -hmm. and that it represents that individual's point of view. Whereas like a, a, a mainstream film is kind of like, a lot of times feels like it's just kind of handed down from on high and it represents like an objective reality about the world. That's like a, somebody took a core sample from the beliefs of our time and now they're telling you what's correct. Yeah, I do. I see a lot of people kind of relying on that conferring of authenticity from above, Yeah, which I think is a very sad state of affairs. Yeah, that shit is fake. Yeah. The best thing you can do is just get really into independent art and talk about it and read it and watch it and not give a shit what Hollywood does or doesn't think about you because it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, don't look at anything that more than 50 people worked on. (laughs) Yeah. And I say this as someone whose entire job is movies. (laughs) It's just, it's fantastic to get involved in art on a more personal level. Yeah. And ultimately, I think that's a lot more important than representation. I agree. What do you think? Should we wrap up here? Yeah, I think we're done here. Yeah. Let's Let's parachute out of here. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Lament Configuration Podcast. You can find us on the podcast apps of your choice and... I got to write a thing, like a thing for an outro, because I never know what to say. And then later I'm like, the people need to know 
You know, there's like anchor.fm slash lament hyphen configuration. Somebody said that they came to the Discord by painstakingly writing down the invite code. I'm not going to read it again. I forgot to to paste the invite code into the episode description. Um, This time she's going to do it. Why don't I write a little little blurb (laughs) for the episode ender? So that we have a thing to say. Yeah. Do we have to, do we have eventually every podcast comes up with a little catchphrase that they say at the end. Our, ours could be like, go fuck yourself, America. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Well, fine. What's your idea? I don't have any ideas. And blank as a <laughs> fart. <laughs> Good night, Gretchen. Good night, Juju.